So yeah, like I said, this has been just a huge week, huge couple of weeks, months uh, of news stories, uh, whether it's the pandemic or the trials, all these different things that have been happening. And, and what's remarkable then is that in the midst of all of that, there was still one news story uh, that, I, that I was following that's been all over the headlines that somehow broke through all of that. It was the story that perhaps you've heard of a small church up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada called Grace Life Church. I don't know if any of you have been following that, but essentially uh, in Alberta, churches are allowed to meet, but they're limited to 15% capacity. And Grace Life basically just kind of ignored that. They just kind of kept meeting and they're doing these just packed services. And they were warned several times, and by several I mean like 18 times, were warned that they couldn't do that. They were in violation of these codes. And the pastor was even jailed for over a month. Uh, and then about two weeks ago, uh, the church was actually closed down. The government shut them down and they actually surrounded the whole property with a big chain link fence and they were told they couldn't meet. And, and that's actually where the story perhaps gets most interesting. And it kind of depends on how, you, where you get your news, on how the story is told. I mean, it's told very differently. Some say that a small group of faithful worshipers gathered outside to pray and quietly sing hymns which sounds pretty harmless. Uh, another news source would say, for instance, that an angry mob of people assembled to protest. Either way, things got out of hand and a section of the fence was torn down and a neighboring property, which happened to actually be owned by a First Nations tribe, uh, was first trespassed on and then vandalized. I mean, things got pretty bad pretty fast. So I'm not sure if it was an angry mob or if it was you know, this pious group of worshipers or probably some combination of both. But I do know that in a season of kind of constant, never-ending headlines, this one got international attention. And Jesus got some pretty bad press last week. If you watch the videos online, there's a whole lot of folks yelling and screaming and cursing and cussing and also that they can get to go to church. It's, it's pretty surreal, frankly. You see, it's, it's safe for us to look at these stories because it's not about us. It's about Canada, like those unruly Canadians, right? Uh, that would never happen here. But I do think it invites us to ask some, some probing questions or, or at least evokes those questions in us. Like, isn't the government denying their right to worship? Uh, are restrictions of 15% capacity, is that even realistic? Or is that just unreasonable? Is it really necessary? Is this a targeted attempt to actually penalize and discriminate against Christians? And don't Christians have the right, like any other group, to protest? Those are just some of the questions that kind of stirs in me and I'm sure in you as well. Well, fortunately, Scripture actually has a lot to say about these sorts of uh, subjects. And today we're going to continue in this series, Counterculture, which is a walk through the book of 1 Peter. And 1 Peter addresses very much how Christians are to interact with the culture around them, a culture that is oftentimes very opposed to them. I mean, it's a tough book. It's written to this group of Christian exiles living in persecution and suffering under brutal Roman rule. And Peter basically writes to them and says the suffering is just going to continue. It's a book without a whole lot of like warm and fuzzy moments, frankly. But, but there are encouraging moments. Peter spends the first chapter and a half basically telling them that while they have been rejected by the culture around them, they are chosen and they are loved by God. While they might be cultural orphans and exiles, they have now been adopted. They now have a home in the family of God. While they might be exiles with no nation state, they are now a part of God's holy nation. 
And in light of that identity as God's chosen people, they now have this responsibility to represent God really well by their actions, by their responses to the persecution that they're experiencing. So I want to pick up right where Caitlin left off last week. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are some great apps like BibleGateway.com, the YouVersion Bible app. They're just a great resource where you can read with us. So 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation, or the day of visitation, rather. How we interact with society around us matters to society, to us, and to God. And I, and I think all of those questions that we have around a situation like this Grace Church or Grace Life Church, those are all legitimate questions. Those are important questions that we need to address and we need to answer, but but perhaps they aren't the most important questions for followers of Christ. As we look at situations like Grace Life, when we're faced with injustices in our own lives and in our own communities, as we talk about issues like sanctity of life and definitions of marriage, as we address ideas like Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, as we continue to be so politically divided over COVID and masking and vaccines and stimulus checks and all these issues that prevail in the news today, Perhaps based on this text alone, there are a few more important questions that that we need to ask ourselves, that maybe we need to ask first before we respond in a situation. So I've I've created this list of sort of three questions for, for reflection. The first is this, is my conduct honorable? Peter calls us to honorable conduct. And so is my conduct, my reaction honorable? Is is the conduct of this group of believers or, or other groups of believers, is it honorable behavior? And it's not just honorable for the sake of being proper and honorable. What's the point that Peter makes? Why should we be honorable in our conduct? It's so that the watching world would bring honor to God. That our conduct, our behavior in the face of persecution then and our behavior now in our own circumstances would so surprise the world around us and so point to the nature and the character of God that they would in turn turn to God and bring glory to God. Our behavior matters because our witness to the world is on the line. Secondly, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, does my reaction bring glory to God. Does my response in this situation glorify God or glorify my opinions, my rights, my agenda, my priorities? I mean, even if you're right on some of this stuff, and you might be, you absolutely might be, does your response bring glory to God? Social media has, has, has made this so much more obvious in the last few years. I mean, never before in history have so many people been able to so publicly show the true nature, the true, true condition of their hearts. I've gone through so many social media pages of believing friends of mine, people who I know love Jesus, where they post something about God or about their church, and then the very next post just blast a politician or blast some leader and just say these horrible, horrible things. I'm going to reach out to them and say, choose one or the other, okay? Like, either post about God or post about your politics, but you can't do both. You can't, with one post, try to glorify God, and with the next, sow discord and hate and disharmony. Even if you're right about Trump or Biden or Waltz or whomever, if you're right about maths or not right, I mean, any of it, it's not okay. 
Stop it. <laughs> and then third, does my reaction bring unbelieving people to bring glory to God? Remember, that's our mission. As disciples of Jesus, does our response to these situations present an accurate picture of who Jesus is to a watching world? Let's keep reading. Next, next passage. Where, where, does, where does Peter go in defining what it means to live honorable lives? And when he talks about you know, stopping these fleshly desires that wage war on our souls, where does he go? Peter goes right out of the gates to the subject of power. And there is perhaps nothing more worldly desire than power, right? It's what every single bad guy wants in every movie ever. And to illustrate this, Peter outlines three different relationships. And all of these relationships that he now goes into over the next chapter, all of them are based on an imbalance of power. The unjust power of the government over the ruled, the unjust power of the master over the slave, and the unjust power of husbands over their wives in that culture. And in each case, Peter's call to the followers of Christ is the same. He calls them to this radical counter-cultural response. He calls them to submission. There's a place to write this in your notes. Submission to power is countercultural. Let's read, starting in verse 13. Submission to authority. Be subject. And a lot of passages will say submit to, uh, or translations will say submit to. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it to be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Peter is saying that living honorable lives means sub submitting to the head of state and to the officials that he has appointed. And that would have been a really tricky message for his first audience, very tricky language for his first audience. Who was emperor? Most likely the emperor, when they received this letter, would have been Nero, perhaps the evilest of all evil emperors. I mean, he makes the guy from Return of the Jedi look great. Okay, I mean, this is the guy who single-handedly was causing all the persecution that these Christians were experiencing. Nero, who, who falsely accused, who blamed the Christians for starting the great fire of Rome, who, who routinely put Christians in the Colosseum to be torn apart by live animals for the entertainment of the crowd. Nero, who famously lit his nighttime parties by, by lighting Christians on fire after having skewered them to stakes. It's where we get the expression Roman candle. It's a little dark, right? This is a bad, bad leader. This makes our entire 2020 electoral ticket look awesome by comparison. Like, I'll vote for anybody but this Nero guy, right? And Peter is calling these Christians to submit to Nero's authority. He's calling out, he's saying the emperor and to the authority of all Nero's minions who went around the region terrorizing these Christians. What does it mean to submit to that? One commentary I read defines submission this way. It says the word in Greek that's used here is hupotasso. It means to order oneself under or according to a given relationship or to live according to the governmental order. Peter is calling these persecuted exiles to put themselves under the authority of this given relationship of persecutor to persecuted, to live according to the governmental order that gave ultimate power to an evil madman. Why would Peter call them to submit to that kind of authority? I mean, it certainly wasn't that Nero's platform aligned well with Judeo-Christian 
priorities. It wasn't that Nero had the best plan for how to alleviate poverty. Why submit? Well, let's look back to verse 13. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake every human institution. It's the same reason he gave in 11 and 12. Verses 13 through 17 are basically an application of the principles from 11 and 12. Submit so that God may be glorified and the culture around you might be impacted. J.R. Michaels in his commentary uh, on 1 Peter says that Peter emphasizes these really challenging relationships between ruler and ruled, between master and slave, between husband and wives, because these were intentionally the points at which Christians could most impact the culture around them by the way they responded. He says these words, Peter's emphasis throughout this on those points at which the Christian community faces outward to confront Roman society. Next verse. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I think Peter is saying, perhaps in part, you know, put your energy into doing good. Yes, you have the freedom, you have the right to fight back, but at what cost to you? to your testimony, to your witness, to the kingdom of God in this world. He's saying you're not slaves to Nero, but we are all servants of God and therefore we are all servants to everyone. Martin Luther, very famously in the 1500s, spoke to this weird dichotomy of freedom in Christ and yet servant to all. He says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. You see, this idea of staining from fleshly desires, it isn't just about not doing bad things. It's about intentionally engaging and doing good things, doing the good work that God prepared in advance for us to do. This isn't about the church simply being passive and obedient to the government. No, the, the church is supposed to, is called to. God demands that we as the church stand in the gap where we see injustice, when we see the sanctity of life is being discounted, when we see the sacredness of life being demeaned in people, when we see women abused by their husbands and people trafficked for sex, we are called to stand in the gap. The question is not that we stand, it's how we stand, the manner in which we stand. And we need to stand in, in such a way that people who disagree with us might look at us and say, man, I hate your position on this, but I can't argue with the manner in which you're standing for it. So what does that look like for us? I mean, to submit in our context. How, how do we do that well? How do we disagree with our leaders? How do we disagree with each other well in a way that brings honor Glory. Well, Peter ends this section about government and about, about leaders by giving us, I think, what could be turned into a simple rubric for us, for us to live by. He says in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It's, it's really very simple. It's four little phrases. And so these are sort of four rules of engagement, four guiding principles for how we can actually begin to do this well in our culture. He says it starts with honor everyone. As followers of Christ, our interactions with everyone 
The good, the bad, and the ugly need to be marked by honor. And that's not honor that's based on merit. Honor everyone, Peter says, even if they don't deserve it. Even if they deserve not to be honored. Ask yourself, is my reaction in this situation, whatever that situation is, is my reaction honoring to everyone involved? Next, Peter says, we need to love the brotherhood. And and that's how the ESV translates this. But really, Peter's saying, love the family of God. That's your first family. Love each other in ridiculous ways that demonstrate to the world what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be cared for by one another, what it means to be lifted up when we experience injustice ourselves. Ask yourself, does my love for my brother or sister in Christ transcend my politics and my opinions and even my rights? Is my life structured in such a way that I can care for brothers and sisters in Christ when they experience injustice, pain, and poverty? Next, Peter says, fear God. Ask yourself, am I reacting right now in this moment, in this season, in this this situation, out of a place of fear? And if so, fear of what? Am I reacting to the images that I see on TV from a place of fear? Fear of riots or or fear of people that are different from me or fear of losing our religious liberties or fear of losing our power or killer viruses or governmental overreach? Is the reaction that I'm feeling, is the, the stirring that I'm feeling, is that from a place of fear? That's natural. But Peter's saying, don't, don't fear those things. Don't fear those people. Fear God alone. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew when he says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. I think Peter is reiterating that God is the perfect king. He's the perfect judge. And he will hold all of us, including the king, and including that jerk at work who just won't shut up about all of his opinions. (laughs) God will hold up all of us and hold us accountable to our actions. And then finally, Peter says, honor the emperor. So so after all of that, then yes, honor the emperor. Notice he doesn't say love the emperor. That's reserved for the people of God. He doesn't say fear the emperor. That was reserved for God. He says honor the emperor. Even if we disagree, even if we think they're evil, even if they are evil, as was the case in the case of Nero. Ask yourself, Do your social media posts, do your water cooler conversation honor leaders, even if you think they're the worst leader since Nero? Scott McKnight, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says this, Christians ought to be known for their respect and even-handed work in governmental and political actions. Sadly, this is not how they are always known today. Many Christians who are candid about their faith and political action are also known for being obstreperous in their political action. Yeah, they're so obstreperous. I, I didn't actually have any idea what that meant. So I actually had to look that up. And what it means is noisy and difficult to control. And yes, I know that guy. And sometimes I am that guy. <laughs> he continues, we must remember that Peter's remarks were in the context of showing respect for all people, regardless of their partisan politics. We as Christians ought to be known for our respect of the government, even when we disagree. That's a tough word. That is a tough pill to swallow. And yet it seems like that's pretty clearly Peter's call here, that we should submit submit even when we disagree. We should show honor and respect even when we disagree. What what does that mean to submit? Well, again, to repeat to that, or to go back to that uh, definition, 
if the definition is to, to order yourself under a given relationship or to live according to a governmental system, I think then we must ask ourselves, like in our modern context, what is my relationship to the state? How do I live according to a governmental order? I mean, in our government, in, in America, we live in a system of democracy. And so living under means engaging in. Our relationship to the state is we are they. We are the people, by the people, for the people, of the people, all the people. We are they. We have a responsibility to engage in our political systems, to make our voices heard by our vote and even by our protest. But to in all times, at all times, do that in a way that is honoring that brings glory to God and people to God. A couple of quick points on what this might look like. A couple of things to remember. Submission to authority is not an endorsement of authority. Biblical submission to the authority of Trump or Biden or Walls or insert whoever you want doesn't mean you're endorsing their platforms or their views. It means you're obeying a biblical call to live under that system. Peter never endorses Nero's authority. In fact, if anything, he reminds his readers that God is ultimately in charge and that Nero and all these evil leaders, they will get theirs in due time. Again, McKnight says this, Christians are to be good citizens because they're obedient to the Lord, not good Christians because they're obedient to the state. Point two, submission doesn't mean agreement. I have, I have so often had conversations with Christians where I've heard something like, I'll submit to the leader if I agree with their stance on an issue. Uh, well, if you agree with them, then that's not actually submission. That's agreement. That's actually, that's a different, it kind of misses the point, actually. Peter's point is exactly the opposite. Peter's point is submit specifically when you don't agree. And he argues that through our submission, God can actually change the world. For instance, both Peter here in this letter and Paul in other letters uh, wrote that slaves should be, submit to their masters, even if their masters were cruel. Is that an endorsement of slavery? Absolutely not. It's not that Peter or Paul would agree with slavery any more than they would agree with evil emperors or husbands that abuse their wives. How do they address it, though? They, they tell slaves to submit to their masters and they tell masters to honor their slaves and they tell both of those people, both of those groups, that in the kingdom of God, there are no slaves and masters. They are just brothers and sisters who restore honor to one another. That's countercultural. that's counterintuitive. That is upside down. But when that actually happens, the corrupt, broken systems of power in this world begin to erode. Systems of slavery where master and slave are equal, where they see each other's family, those systems can't stand. They quickly break down. A system of marriage where husbands and wives willingly submit to one another and honor one another, that, that creates marriages that, that can endure and that can serve as a model to a watching world, not only of what a great marriage looks like, but even more of what the relationship between God and his people can be. A system of government where, where Peter calls the church to submit to Roman rule. And within a short time, Christianity becomes the dominant religion in Rome. What systems in your life and in our world need to be changed.
Peter then summarizes the whole thing by pointing out uh, another unbalanced power relationship, Jesus's relationship to the state. God, who is all powerful, chose to take on flesh, to surrender his honor, to surrender his power, and become a servant to all, even to the point of death. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ submitted as an example for us to follow, but I think also as a statement that in God's kingdom, submission to power is how God is honored and our world is changed. And I, I don't I don't understand that fully. And yet I see that in the ministry of Christ who went before Pontius Pilate and was silent, who was silent in the face of his unjust accusers. It's the same thing that, that Peter seems to be calling the church to, in this case, under the rule of, of a horrible, horrible person. Somehow God can take our willingness to submit and through that change the world. You know, process that. Discuss that as a family, discuss that as a small church, push back on it, send me an email. I, I don't understand this fully. And yet that seems to be what we're being called to. Next verse, verse 22. He committed no sin, meaning Jesus, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What if we, in response to situations like Grace Life or, or to George Floyd or Dante Wright or politicians we agree with or policies that we feel are unjust to us or to others, what if we saw ourselves first as exiles? as resident aliens living in this land? What if our first response wasn't to seek our own safety, or our own comfort, but instead to seek the good of others so that the watching world might see our good deeds and glorify God? What if we saw ourselves not first or primarily as citizens of a country, but rather as missionaries to a country, representing Jesus to a watching world by what we abstain from, but also by what we do, the good that we do in this world. How would that change our perspective, our priorities, our social media posts? It's not that we stand, we must. It's how we stand. I don't think, I, I, it wouldn't mean we don't protest. In fact, I think it would mean perhaps we protest more, <laughs> but we would do it in a way that is honorable and glorifies God, that, that puts the mission of God first, above our rights, above our priorities and our agendas and our politics and our preferences and all these different things. It elevates the mission of God to bring more people to himself, to the fore. That's the example that Peter gives us and the example that Peter continually returns to by pointing to the life and the ministry and the, ultimately the death of Jesus Christ. But submission to power is countercultural. And it's hard. Let me pray for us. Jesus Christ, th this is a message that, that seems so out of line 
with the narrative of our world right now, where so much of our time is spent trying to pursue power, even for the right reasons, pursue power so that we might accomplish good. And yet into that you've modeled and you've taught and you've commanded that somehow we take a stance in how we interact with the world around us that models submission, that models honoring and respecting. And we wanna cry out, we wanna scream, we want to fight. And in the midst of that, you somehow call us to trust and to faithfully work, to do good in the midst of this brokenness. And God, that, that's, that's not our nature. That's not how we're wired. And so God, we ask that you would be doing that in us, that you would be writing that script for us. That you'd be giving us wisdom. That you'd be transforming us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we might represent you well, that we might bring honor to your name, and that we might bring more people to you because if they see us modeling you, do that in us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.